Support for WPR comes from the American Society of Landscape Architects Wisconsin Chapter. Dedicated to reimagining the design of outdoor spaces for the well-being of all. Examples at WIASLA.com. Support for WPR comes from the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art, an independent organization dedicated to creating experiences that educate, reflect, and inspire. More is at MMOCA.org. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Under current Wisconsin law, unaccompanied minors have to get a parent's or legal guardian's consent in order to receive health or dental care. The law has exceptions for substance abuse treatment and reproductive care, excluding abortion. But it leaves out very basic medical care, like dental cleanings, annual physicals, vaccinations, even common illnesses like bronchitis and strep throat, which can become dangerous left untreated. This affects young people who are homeless, as well as some young people in the care of their grandparents or others who are not registered as legal guardians. Access to health care isn't the only problem homeless youth face in Wisconsin. State law dictates that shelters must reject homeless youth if they're unable to obtain consent from a parent or guardian within 12 hours, significantly shorter than the federally recommended 72 hours. This can leave young people out in the street. State lawmakers are considering bills aimed at helping address some of these problems. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Has youth homelessness affected you or your family? What do you think people misunderstand about this problem? Do you work with young people, maybe at a school or community group, and see some of these problems firsthand yourself? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You could also email ideas at WPR.org. Jolie Gunther is the executive director of the Wisconsin Association for Homeless and Runaway Services. Jolie, thanks a lot for joining us today. My pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Well, I started off by talking about this issue of uh, younger people needing parental consent, which uh, in many circumstances might be just fine. But in with the youth you work with, what kind of problems do you see arising? Yeah, I think you hit the. I, I, I think you hit it exactly by saying um, parental consent in the in the situations that we're talking about. Um, I think it's useful to just step back and think about what it means to be an unaccompanied minor as defined by federal statute, which is really what we reference in this legislation. And we really are talking about young people that do not have a parent or guardian um, that is accessible to provide uh, consent for these services and that have not been, for whatever reason, taken under the jurisdiction of Child Protective Services and are not under the jurisdiction of Juvenile Protective Services. So we really are talking about young people that, for whatever reason, are providing for their own needs needs um, and yet are unable to access the basic medical care that their dental or physical health professionals recommending. Have we found ways to to get medical care in those cases for for that kid who who doesn't have the the situation where they can get consent from a parent or or child protective services or something like that or are they really just uh, out of luck? Right. They really are just out of luck. We have uh, certain um, considerations within our existing Wisconsin statutes that you referenced during the introduction. So a young person who is over the age of 14 is able to um, receive medical care for substance abuse. Um, They are also able to access reproductive care. And we do have some protections for situations that are considered to be life-threatening. So when they are considered to be um, an immediate threat to themselves or to others, then there is medical care that would be provided in that case. Uh, Beyond that, um, it really is a situation where a parent or guardian needs to consent for the most basic medical care. Um, I have examples um, from discussion with communities across the state and from young people where um, a young person might be accessing shelter and that young person may be a parent themselves and able to consent for the care of their own child, and yet they're not able to do as much as just um, receive ibuprofen while they are uh, in the medical care of the shelter. So. They just can't consent to even the most basic care. There was a recent investigation by uh, the USA Today newspapers here in Wisconsin Mm -hmm. looking at this. They give some very basic examples, like uh, if this uh, kid uh, who's maybe homeless, doesn't have that parent able to give consent, uh, breaks an arm, right? Something you don't want to happen, but it's kind of routine. They literally can't get treatment for that? Exactly. So there's no... um, there's no provision for a minor to receive care for something that is not immediately life-threatening. So 
what happens within an emergency department is going to be determined within that department, but any ongoing care. So um, there's an example from the same reporter um, that was covered about a year ago of a young person who had broken a leg. The leg had healed badly. Um, they were not under the care of CPS. They were not. Um, they were not within the uh, protection. They were not within the care of their their legal guardian, their parent, and they were not able to receive ongoing care for this broken leg. They are going to have uh, problems for the rest of their life with the way that their with the way that their leg functions. Talking to Jolie Gunther, executive director of the Wisconsin Association for Homeless and Runaway Services, looking at some of the many challenges facing uh, homeless young people or others without uh, effective guardians who can sign a medical consent and other problems. You could join in with your response to this, your questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Julie, as I understand it, I, we're talking, I think, mainly about uh, homeless and runaway youth here. But also, uh, this could affect someone who, say, uh, grandparents are taking care of the kid, but they haven't uh, gotten legal status as legal guardians yet. Uh, they may fall into the same uh, the same problem, right? Yeah, actually, um, our sponsoring senator, Senator Johnson, um, had the same sort of experience, which I think is what uh, made her compassionate to this concern, um, where she was under the care of her grandparents and um, the only care that she was able to access was to go through Planned Parenthood, again, because reproductive care is something that is available to young people in Wisconsin. But um, if somebody needs to access services through a free clinic or a sliding scale clinic, and this, again, as you said in the introduction, it could be anything from, you know, strep throat, a skin infection, um, things that happen when a young person is on the street. Um, they cannot receive that care for that, which is not only a concern for themselves, but also really a public health issue. We've mentioned a couple times this legislation aimed at changing some of this. Uh, can you tell us what is in this uh, this bill that would tackle these problems we're talking about? Yeah, we really left the, the legislation um, deliberately very, very simple. And so um, there are the instances that we already referenced that are covered by other legislation related to substance abuse and reproductive care. This is really about... Um, staying out of the medical definition and simply allowing a minor to access uh, medical, dental, and mental health care um, if they are defined as being unaccompanied. And that is a reference to the federal statute under McKinney-Vento, which is an unaccompanied minor. Um, and in order to verify that, because, you know, this is this certainly should not be a situation where um, we are supporting the circumvention of, of parental control over minor care. This is really a situation of meeting basic medical needs. And so that certification would be provided by um, a school representative who is there to provide services to young people experiencing homelessness or who is um, providing a shelter. So this could also be a representative from a shelter intake where a young person has access shelter uh, to address their homelessness. What kind of response have you gotten from the legislature apart from the, the bill sponsors? Do you get the sense this is something that uh, there's interest in taking action on? Not ask you to predict the future, but no, are you getting a, a good response? So I think that's a really fair question. Um, I have received compassion, I will say, um, from both sides that um, it is, you know, it's inhumane for somebody to not be able to access just simply the care that they need and that is recommended by their physician. Um, speaking very candidly, I will say that we are in a potentially divisive time and that there are issues that um, people are not willing to consider whether or not they're written into the legislation. And so um, there are perceptions that because this would open the door for a young person to receive the care for their uh, that is recommended by their physician, that this might also provide a cir circumvention that would lead to an influx of young people seeking gender affirming care, which is certainly what, not what this is designed to be uh, there to address. And um, there would be uh, facets that would prevent that from happening. And it's not written into the legislation, but it's simply that um, that would not be a piece uh, that is generally going to be covered, for example, under Medicaid. Also wanted to ask about another issue that I, I mentioned at the outset. When it comes to young people, again, who might have difficulty getting this parental consent, being able to uh, get into a, a shelter, a homeless shelter, for example, what is the situation there? So um, Wisconsin has a state statute uh, 48.227 
um, that if a young person accesses shelter, um, the shelter needs to obtain parental consent within 12 hours in order to continue to provide services. At that point, there is a provision under the statute uh, for the shelter to provide a report to juvenile intake and um, state that they are not able to obtain parental consent. If we have a family um, that for whatever reason is not uh, likely to want to work with, with CPS, um, that young person sometimes chooses to exit the shelter um, rather than to make a formal report at that point. And unfortunately, what that leads to is circumstances where um, being unable to continue to maintain shelter, that young person is often forced to exit to a situation that is simply not safe. Um, again, just speaking very candidly, uh, there can be situations where a young person and leaves goes to access uh, public transportation. Um, people who are likely to exploit and to potentially traffic minors um, will wait, knowing that they've been in contact with this young person and that they that this young person is in a very tenuous situation, and will take advantage of that situation, leading to worse out outcomes. Jolie Gunther is with this executive director of the Wisconsin Association for Homeless and Runaway Services. She's talking with us about a bill in the state legislature that would make it easier for unaccompanied minors to access health care. Other legislation aimed at helping them access shelter. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions for our guest? Do you work with unaccompanied minors? Have you dealt with uh, youth homelessness in your own life, in your own family? You could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll continue the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation about youth homeless. Our conversation about youth homelessness here in Wisconsin challenges under state law limiting access to health care and to shelter in some cases. Jolie Gunther is with us, executive director of the Wisconsin Association for Homeless and Runaway Services. You could join in at 800-642-1234. You could join in with your thoughts, your questions, maybe your own experiences at 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Let's go to a caller now. Elliot joins us in Rock County. Elliot, hi. Hi, uh, I'm really, uh, you know, thank you for this conversation. It's very interesting. And I am an educator myself. Um, and I guess what I wanted to ask was, you know, this really is very confusing to me. I don't have children myself, but I just want to know, like, what would motivate the creation of, um, like, regulations or laws that require minors to have consent from their parents to even access health care or like what's the history of that elliot thanks a lot for the call do you have some of that kind of uh, deeper background on that jolie you know i really don't have why it was there in the mm -hmm. first place only that that is our existing legislation um, and so I know that, you know, we have the history where at some point in time we introduced uh, these abilities that are exceptions to the legislation that essentially requires um, that in order to access care, um, minors need to have parental permission. And that that and, 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 you know, we all see that if we go into an office um, for a visit, um, that the parent is there providing that permission for a minor at that time or that they are seeking that prior to providing care. So I really don't have the specific background on when that was implemented. However, I can say um, that we are different from far more than the majority of states. So um, uh, Minnesota and Illinois, to you know, our neighbors also have legislation that permits access, and actually, 34 states in the country do. So, Wisconsin is an outlier in that respect. Um, certainly, there is uh, a recognition of, of an importance of parental rights in Wisconsin. However, this is really not about circumventing parental rights. This is really simply um, it, it is for the good of everybody that our, our minors receive basic health care. And if, for whatever reason, a young person is experiencing homelessness and their parent um, or legal guardian is not available um, and will not consent to care. Um, and we have not, you know, screened this young person in for um, greater levels of protection, then we have a human obligation to ensure that they're able to just access basic med medical care. It, it's dehumanizing to not do so. 
Elliot, thanks for that call at 800-642-1234. I want to ask about wider issues, Julie, when it comes to youth homelessness in Wisconsin. First of all, do we have a solid notion of how many kids are living uh, homeless and uh, without an adult in their life? Absolutely. So there are different ways that we um, count and look at this and different uh, systems of data. Um, The one that we are going to rely on primarily for identifying youth who would fall under this is going to be that of the public school system. And so uh, public school districts um, operate under federal legislation, which is McKinney-Vento Education of Homeless Children and Youth. And as a piece of that legislation, they're required to work to identify young people experiencing homelessness within their school district. Um, Within those counts each year, Um, Using the definitions of homelessness under McKinney-Vento, the larger number is around 20,000 a year. It goes up and down a little bit on each side of that. Those are not all young people that would be eligible for this. We are talking about um, approximately 2,000 per year who fall into the definition of unaccompanied youth. So it is a fraction of um, children and youth who are experiencing homelessness that have been identified within the school system. To some extent, that number does also represent um, an underrepresentation. So, um, because it, it, it's hard to recognize homelessness in some instances, or because school districts do not receive additional funding to do this and to provide services, we don't capture um, every count. Um, Additionally, the larger number represents a different view of homelessness than people sometimes think about. So things like um, doubled up in circumstances um, that are not sufficient to support a young person in their education or um, trying to um, be housed in a hotel, um, which again, doesn't provide just the facilities you know, to, to do laundry and to prepare meals that a young person needs in order to continue their education. Um, those are considered homeless under McKinney-Vento as well. But an unaccompanied youth is one who does not have a parent or legal guardian with them and is experiencing those circumstances or um, more strictly um, circumstances that we might traditionally think of like on the street or in a car, um, that sort of thing. Jolie Gunther is with us, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Association for Homeless and Runaway Services. Uh, let's go back to another caller now. Oop, I, they're not quite ready now. Uh, so in the meantime, Jolie, uh, I will ask you, um, what are some of the causes of uh, young people becoming uh, unaccompanied homeless youth? What, what is the story behind them ending up in that situation? Yeah, you know, all of the things that we're experiencing as a society certainly can contribute to that. So anything um, that is happening in the home or with the young person can certainly lead to it being harder for the young person to be in the home, everything from substances to mental health. Um, But there can also be situations in the home that are not bearable, um, where we have circumstances of abuse or even um, circumstances where the young person is being exploited. Um, in the home that they are living in. Um, Also, though, I don't think that we can discount just the rising cost of living and the sometimes resourcefulness of young people um, that is also recognized by families. So I have heard very um, clear examples of somebody that was um, in high school and their their family lost their housing. And as they worked to, as the family worked to find new housing or to double up, that young person essentially was pushed out for financial reasons because the family was not able to sustain themselves. So really any circumstance that can lead to crisis or that can lead to homelessness um, is going to impact people who are at a transitional age even more deeply. We've got that caller ready to go. Sheila is with us at Madison. Sheila, hi. Hi. I was just wondering, um, so I work in the schools. I'm a school nurse. I was just kind of wondering um, if a parent or the person who is accompanying uh, youth that's homeless agrees, what, bar- I mean, what are the barriers to getting it so that the school can help Um, take a kid to the doctor if they feel they really need to be seen at a doctor's office um, without the parent. Um, Because it seems like we have to rely on parents, and if parents are dealing with their own mental health issues or um, homeless or lack transportation, it always is a barrier to get them Mm. seen by the doctor, even though they have medical assistance and um, 
all the insurance. Sheila, thanks a lot for the call. Julie, what role can schools play in helping uh, connect that kid with medical care uh, with or without the parent's uh, consent in this situation? Right. So obviously, again, without parental consent, we're not able to work with that situation. But I love the question that you're asking, Sheila. Um, And I will share that that, you know, that's like really advocacy at the very, very basic grassroots level that um, I've talked with um, agencies and and people providing services like you. And um, it really has taken the right provider and the right documentation and so there isn't a formal process this could be an ongoing um, concern um, that we could bring forward at a legislative level but that in some instances we're able to get there um, by finding the right provider to work with um, by doing the conversations ahead of time and then by providing whatever documentation we can work with so it could be something like a template um, and a known provider Um, that might allow for the youth to access services. Because in that case, um, there's not a legal barrier to the young person receiving the services, but there can certainly be procedural barriers. Sheila, thanks for that call. In just our last minute or so, Jolie, apart from the bills we've talked about, is there something else that uh, you have on your priority list that could help uh, unaccompanied minors, uh, homeless youth in Wisconsin? Oh, I appreciate that so much. Thank you. Um, so another piece that I think I, I led to a little bit earlier that has been introduced in legislation is AB 48 SB 51, which is making it illegal to charge minors with prostitution. So I reference the um, concerns related to trafficking and exploitation that really are um, often a very close second to what young people experience as they enter and remain in homelessness. Um, what this bill would do is make essentially make it illegal um, to charge a minor with prostitution, which would increase the likelihood that they would work um, with law enforcement and lead to uh, prosecution of the actual creators of the crime. Um, And we do have um, this legislation again in neighboring states, and it has led to an increase in prosecution. It has bipartisan support, and it is currently um, stalled in committee and Um, I have hopes that we can continue this conversation um, and move this forward. Jolie, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. Jolie Gunther is the executive director of the Wisconsin Association for Homeless and Runaway Services. She talked to us about the state of youth homelessness in Wisconsin, including a bill that would make it easier for unaccompanied minors to access basic health care. I'm Rob Ferret. Stick around. There's more to come on Central Time. You're listening to the Ideas Network. Central Time, I'm Rob Ferret. We have a lot of Scandinavian heritage here in Wisconsin. Maybe you've been to the Sitting to My Festival in Stoughton, visited the Trolls of Mount Horeb, or enjoyed traditional foods from the region at restaurants or homemade. Maybe your family eats Norwegian lefse around the holidays even. On this edition of Food Friday, a chef and restaurant owner brings us her experiences baking in Denmark for many years and shares some of her favorite Scandinavian baked goods from her new cookbook. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Have you traveled in Scandinavian countries? Do you have Scandinavian heritage in your own family? Do you have some favorite baked goods from that tradition? Do you make some of these Scandinavian staples like uh, lefse from Norway, Swedish cinnamon buns, Danish kringle? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Nicole Asatola is chef and owner of Canteen, a Scandinavian-inspired restaurant in San Francisco. Her new cookbook is Scandinavian from Scratch, a love letter to the baking of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Nicole, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Rob. Well, you've got a personal story of how you got hooked on Scandinavian baking. Share a little bit of that with us, please. 
Yeah, you know, it's a story that spans many more years than I had initially <laughs> thought it would. I started out by going, I had worked as a chef in Boston, uh, trained chef from Culinary Institute of America, started working out in the field, upscale restaurants in Boston, and kind of got burnt out with the whole thing and thought, you know what, a lot of chefs go to Europe. Uh, maybe I should try and train over there and just get a new perspective on things. And I, to be true, I, to be honest, I would have preferred to have gone to Italy or France, <laughs> but I knew some people in Denmark. And so I decided to head that way and have a cra a cra um, a crash on their couches and so forth and fell in love with uh, Scandinavia and that lifestyle there and didn't want to come back. And so I ended up staying eventually. I went back, I had went back and forth over a number of visits and I ended up moving over there thinking I'm going to stay for one year and get some training and so forth. And I ended up staying for 15 years. So. <laughs> and you encountered something that I love the concept of, uh, this was in Copenhagen, the pastry, mm -hmm. the pastry crawl. That sounds like my idea of a yes. good time. Tell us uh, what goes on there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, Noma is, uh, has been is a, a very very famous restaurant and there have been teams and armies of people working at noma uh in both the pastry but also the savory kitchen and you know they've kind of gotten roots in denmark uh a lot of people stick around after they no longer worked at rome anymore and so if funny enough it's really affected uh the way that you eat in casual restaurants and also bakeries so there is there are more fantastic bakeries that, like they're so concentrated in copenhagen than any other city i know san francisco is also a great baking city mm -hmm. by the way but uh it, so when i i have a friend um her name's paula and when when i am now in copenhagen we always make time to go on a pastry crawl <laughs> and it's basically we get up early at the crack of dawn we much rather do this than a bar crawl you know we we wake up we bike around so we're you know getting some motion in there uh some exercise in between our our stops but we basically go from place to place and because we're two we can share some things and not get too full too fast but we basically go to our the top bakeries in the city and yeah sample the best that they have all right now you've got some savory and some sweet stuff. Let's start with yeah. sweet and the pastries. And uh, let's key mm -hmm. in on one vital spice here, the cardamom. Mm -hmm. Why is this yeah. such an important part of our Scandinavian treats? Yeah, you know, cardamom is magical when it comes to spices. Cardamom is in many other world cuisines, but in particular Sweden. They consume a great amount of cardamom <laughs> in that country, much more than than Norway or Denmark. And, uh, you know, I think when it's done right, when you buy the right ingredients, and, and by that I mean when you grind fresh cardamom, it it is so beautiful. It's, it's um, kind of... You, it's kind of citrusy and almost like, um, yeah, it just has, it's not, not like anything you'll know, you would ever recognize from the pre-ground variety that you buy in the grocery store. Yeah. You have this like it's, middle ground cardamom you talk about. You can buy powdered. Don't get that. You mm -hmm. say you can get the whole mm -hmm. pod and that's kind of difficult. Mm. What are you recommending we try to find? Yeah, so you should go for uh, something that is available online. If you want, if you are an avid fan of uh, of cardamom, I would say go for what's called decorticated cardamom, and it's basically if you were to take those cardamom pods and smash them lightly or crush them, you could pull out these little black seeds, and those black seeds are what decorticated cardamom is. It's the it's the card the most flavorful part of the cardamom, and when you grind them fresh right before you're ready to eat it or to put it in your baked good it is just so much more fragrant and almost eucalyptus and and so many more flavor notes and much more complex than what you would get which is the pre-ground who knows when that was ground and put into a jar right <laughs> it is food friday we're talking to nicole isatola about her new cookbook it's called mm -hmm. scandinavian from scratch a love letter to the baking of denmark norway and sweden you could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Okay, Nicole, you've shared a few recipes with us. Mm -hmm. I want to check out one that highlights another key ingredient, uh, almonds mm -hmm. here. Uh, this is semlor, mm. and I guess that's plural. It's, yes. If you have just one, it's a semla. If I have lots, right. and I'll have lots, it's semlor. Tell us a little bit about this dish. <laughs> 
Yeah, so essentially this is a light, fluffy bun that's eaten around Lent time or before Lent starts technically, so you can fatten up before the fast begins. <laughs> so it has these religious notes but or, or roots, but it, it doesn't, it's not necessarily, all. it's not always associated with that. It's just something that you eat around this time of year. And it's tremendously popular in the Swedish community, but we've adopted it. Uh, in Denmark as well, I think all the the best bakeries are all making it right around you know January February. Some some bakeries in Sweden up in Stockholm they do it year round because it is so popular. But it's a light fluffy bun that's scented with cardamom, and when it's been baked, you hollow it out almost like a twice baked potato, and you save those innards and you mix it together with almond paste and a little bit of a little bit of milk, um, and then you put it back inside. Um, and then you put a nice dollop or a piping of whipped cream on top and top put the top back on like a jack-o'-lantern kind of thing. It is it is so decadent and luxurious. You, you, uh, yeah, I would also always be referring to it in the plural form. <laughs> and I'm looking at the pictures of the Semlor right yeah. now. They look awesome. And also, um, you mentioned the almond paste. And this is a, a yeah. frequent flyer, mm -hmm. right, in uh, the pastries we're talking yeah. about. It sure is, yeah. A lot of times in as fillings in different pastries, we have a favorite pastry in Denmark that is very traditional that we also have a recipe for in the book. It's called Tibirkis, and it's basically a croissant dough, so very flaky as opposed to the, the soft fluffy of the semla, but uh, it's a flaky pastry dough with an almond paste center. It's so good. All right, now let's get savory a little bit here. Mm -hmm. uh, rye bread, Danish rye mm -hmm. bread. You are a huge fan of this stuff. Now, I like mm -hmm. rye bread. Uh, talk a little bit about the what makes Danish rye bread this distinct and awesome thing. Yeah, so most people, when they think about rye bread, unless they've grown it up in in Europe or, or have a reference to Europe with the dark rye breads type, a lot of people think that it's similar to a Jewish rye, which it is not. It's a completely different animal of its own. And it is, uh, it's usually darkened uh, with malt, with the addition of malt. And it's a, the one that I make is a sprouted rye bread. So it's a little bit easier on your stomach, a little bit more nutritious. It's not like the old traditional rye bread that you eat in Denmark or you ate in Denmark uh, is, was kind of like sat heavy in your stomach and was mainly based only on rye flour. This is a lighter version of a modern twist on it where you have these sprouted rye berries in there, the actual rye grains that are sprouted. And then we've got lots of seeds in there. So it's a dark rye type, but it's not heavy in that way. And it's excellent for uh, slicing thinly and then topping with all kinds of toppings, which we call it's our open face sandwiches that we call smarapol. I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up next. Whether we're making our own rye bread or <laughs> buying it, I, mm -hmm. like Denmark, I think is famous for these open face yeah. sandwiches. I'm gonna try it. smora brood. Am I pretty close yes. there? Okay. Yeah, very um, good. And you gave us a recipe for one that that mm -hmm. looks good to me. Uh, others mm -hmm. in my family, I don't think are gonna want to touch it because it has beets and herring. <laughs> but it is a Russian herring salad with beets mm -hmm. and apple smora brood. We've got it up uh, mm -hmm. with that. A uh, couple other things at wpr.org/food. Tell us about this combo on this Danish open face sandwich. Yeah, so you know, it's funny. You know, we are in North Denmark, Scandinavia, Norway. It is a Northern European influence by a lot of many of the same things that are, the foods and ingredients that are you'll find in in Eastern Europe, Europe, uh, in Finland, and so forth. So. There is and also some Russian influences as well. And so this is for sure something that's been influenced from Russia, uh, that where there's a, a beet and apple uh, salad that's uh, mayonnaise. There's some mayonnaise. There's some crunchy. Um, uh, there's some pickle slices in there. There's capers, uh, some sour cream. And so it's a nice creamy dressing that you put on top of a nice slice of this uh of the rye bread and you can you can put the herring in there as we did in the book but in case your relatives maybe wouldn't go for it you can also put in some potatoes some boiled potatoes dice them up and just leave out the herring it's delicious let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234 caro is with us in madison caro hi hi what did you want to tell us hi caro hi well i just want to say i grew up in northern michigan um, with my Scandinavian ancestors, I grew up in a Swedish church, and I just all the great food that we made there, especially the bakers, the women that would bake um, Swedish coffee bread. My yes. grandmother used to make this Swedish limpa bread, 
Mm-hmm. When it would be hot out of the oven, we'd smear butter on it, and it was so good. <laughs> yeah, and it's a slightly of, sweet bread, correct? Yes, it's like mm-hmm. a sweet rye bread. Mm-hmm. And one of our Christmas traditions to this day is having Swedish potato sausage on Christmas Eve. Mm. Carol, thanks so mm. much for sharing that with us. Now, let's talk about what would make uh, a Swedish or, or any of the countries you're talking about uh, a coffee cake uh, distinctively Scandinavian. Well, you know, I mean, it, so we make something that's similar to a coffee cake here. And it, we we have as our default spice cardamom because it is so it lends itself so well to fruits and so forth. Uh, the Scandinavian countries are also big on dairy, so there's got to be lots of good butter. We have also some sour cream or yogurt in there. Um, you know, just like some richness where it's not so much about the ch- size of the chunk that you're going to be eating because it will be rich, um, but it is full of flavor and moist. Thanks again for that call. We are talking to Nicole Isatola, chef and owner of Canteen, a Scandinavian-inspired restaurant in San Francisco. It's Food Friday. We're talking about her new cookbook. It's called Scandinavian from Scratch, a love letter to the baking of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. You could join in at 800-642-1234. You have a favorite sweet treat from Scandinavia. Do you love the Danish rye bread? We talking about your family and maybe something you grew up with here. Is there something you still like to make yourself? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our Food Friday conversation with Chef Nicole Isatola about her new book, Scandinavian from Scratch, which offers recipes and techniques for delicious baked goods, many sweets, some savory from Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. You could join in at 800-642-1234. What foods and flavors make you think of those Scandinavian countries? Do you have a favorite baked good from Norway, Sweden, or Denmark? Did you grow up with these baked goods. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can find a few recipes that Nicole shared with us at WPR.org slash food. Let's go back to your calls now. Kay is with us in Madison. Kay, hello. Hi, how are you doing? I'm so glad to have this show because this is a question right on my mind these days. I'm 70% Scandinavian, Danish, and but mostly Swedish. And besides lingonberries and uh, uh, herring and sour cream, which I, even as a four-year-old I was insane about, <laughs> and actually a very good thing with it is sautéed apples and onions. But um, is there something I could I could make as like a holiday thing for myself, like the summer solstice or something? Okay, thanks a lot for the call. Nicole, can you help uh, Kay embrace her culinary roots a little more? Uh, Nicole, are you there? Not hearing. Sorry. Oh, there you sorry. are. Great. Okay. Sorry, but yeah, was that for the summer solstice or the, uh, or the She mentioned solstice? summer, so how about a nice light summer, summer something for Kay? Yeah. Yeah, so um, in along the sweet notes, I would say uh, we have uh, a wonderful cake. It's the fa- it's actually when people ask me what's your favorite recipe out of the book, it's called the Royal Party Cake, and it's uh, it's great because it's a, extremely versatile. It's basically a cake that two thin layers of you take a cake batter, you p- spread it into two small cake pans. On top of that. Before it's baked, you put on meringue. You bake both pans at the same time. And when you take that out, you can layer it up with some whipped cream on each layer, then then put the one layer on top of the other and with some fresh fruit like piled in between there. So it's really beautiful when summer is at its peak and you have all kinds of fresh berries, especially as was mentioned, red uh, lingonberries, fresh red currants, you know, strawberries, raspberries, anything. It's amazing. In the summertime, it's it's a no-brainer. In the wintertime, you can mix it up with some stewed fruit or something like that. But Okay, thanks a lot ex- for the call. Hope that helps. Uh, we'll go to Gary now in Johnson Creek. Gary, hi. Hi. Uh, I, years ago, I uh, had a lessa that was made with cottage cheese. And I wonder if you have ever heard of a recipe containing cottage cheese. 
No, that's a new one for me, Gary. Um, no, I I have we have potato based ones and flour based ones, but no, I've never heard of cottage cheese. I'm gonna have to check that out. That's a, thanks a lot for the call, Gary. I hadn't heard of that either. That reminds me, we don't have this up, but uh, one thing that struck me, you got some uh, some pancakes there with rye. Okay, that sounds pretty cool, and a secret ingredient of <laughs> beer in our pancakes. Yeah. How'd that beer get in there? <laughs> Well, it probably was an accident, maybe sometime <laughs> in the kitchen, but it works out. You know that 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 uh, they say that you know a, a meal can be very uh, satisfying if it meets you know all the different senses and and the and the taste you know with sweet and salty and bitter and umami and so forth and that sourness that comes from the beer matches so well with the sweetness that you're bound to put on it whether it be berries or some sugar cinnamon sugar or cardamom sugar and so forth so it is it's really good uh, more than what you might assume let's go back to our callers at 800-642-1234 jan is with us now in milwaukee jan hi hi i'm danish my father grew up in denmark <clears throat> my grandmother was more norwegian but Lefsa was always a big thing, and I, I just started listening. I'm sure mm -hmm. Lefsa has probably been mentioned. But um, another thing my grandma made, which is probably very unhealthy, I think she called them rosettes. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and I, I, I think it was pretty much what we call funnel cakes over here, deep fried. Yeah, the, the fried ones. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, day, I mean, health, health wasn't... Day, Oh, go ahead, Jen. This day, my my aunt uh, still gets together with her daughter, my cousin, and they kind of make a party of it. She runs the show because <laughs> she knows how to make the lefsa. Uh -huh. and, uh, Thanks. Every year they get a they have a lefsa party. Love it. Thanks That's so fun. much for sharing that, Jen. Now that reminds me, uh, you wrote in the book, uh, Nicole, that part of why you wanted to start a restaurant in San Francisco was. Mm -hmm. There were people like you and other people familiar with Scandinavian mm -hmm. food, and it was a Scandinavian bakery desert in San Francisco. Talk about that a little. Yeah, it really was. There was nobody else doing Scandinavian. You would think that, you know, a lot of attention had come to, to Scandinavia for Noma and so forth, but that's on an upscale level. And I just kind of missed those staples that we were I was used to having while living in, in Scandinavia. So I figured, you know, hey, you know, I started baking rye bread one loaf at a time and kind of perfecting my own recipe for at home and then saw that there was a need among Scandinavians and, and also some people, you know, that some Germans and so forth of, of large population. You know, a lot of Scandinavians moved to also to San Francisco, among other places like Wisconsin. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we're meeting a need here. Thanks again for that call. It's Food Friday. We're talking to Nicole Asatola, chef and owner of the restaurant Canteen in San Francisco. Her new cookbook is called Scandinavian from Scratch, a love letter to the baking of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. Uh, let's. I love waffles, uh, and you're, mm -hmm. you've got some uh, Scandinavian waffles. They're different than, say, your Belgian-type waffle. There's some special gear mm -hmm. that we could get to make them just right. Tell us a little bit about the yeah. waffles you work with. Yeah. So as you mentioned, there's a lot of people are familiar with Belgian waffles and those are usually quite thick and they have deep crevices for, for topping and putting whipped cream and so forth on these, uh, Scandinavian waffles are different. They are, uh, usually very, very thin. And traditionally most people have a waffle iron at home, whether it be electric or something for the range, but if they're, it's usually uh, in the pattern of some hearts that are joined, the bases of the hearts are joined to create a kind of star of heart hearts. Um, in this particular recipe, I use uh, kefir, uh, which is like a yogurt-based uh, drink or in ingredient. It gives a nice little sourness to the dough, similar to the sourness that comes from the beer in the pancakes. And then you can top it with either savory or sweet, um, as you like. I like to have it sweet, but you can definitely put you know, a piece of smoked fish on there or something like that. Um, then I would probably omit the cardamom that's in this recipe as well. But just a good smear of some good jam and a little bit of whipped cream or powdered sugar is really, really delicious. I buy my iron, um, uh, my waffle iron online. And yeah, it works out really well. They're nice and crispy. Mm -hmm. And Nicole, uh, my brother lives in San Francisco. He hasn't been to your restaurant oh. yet. He may swing by after work today. Send him over. Yeah, if there was one pastry that's like, <laughs> this is the one you got to try. This is like the A1, number one thing that people are going to love here. What should he or whoever oh, uh, try gosh. picking up? One pastry. Just okay. one. Well, he can only I eat so much. Say, yeah. 
Um, so I would say probably, I know some just came out of the oven. Now we're going to be closing here shortly. So he oh, better rush over it. here. Yeah, we have some it. cardamom morning buns. Again, that same flaky Danish dough that is very, uh, is just king in Scandinavian bakeries. It's similar to the croissant dough, nice and flaky. We smear it with some of those, that, that freshly ground decorticated cardamom seeds and some butter and roll it up like a, like a cinnamon knot. You would do an American cinnamon, a cinnamon bun. Um, and then we slice it and put it in a muffin pan and let it puff up and get and then into the oven with it. And it, so it has a caramelized base, but then nice and airy and fluffy on the inside. It is to die for. Nicole, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rob. It's been so much fun. That's Nicole Asatola, chef and owner of Canteen, a Scandinavian-inspired restaurant in San Francisco. She was with us on Food Friday to share recipes from her new cookbook. It's called Scandinavian from Scratch, a love letter to the baking of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden. You can find a few recipes that Nicole shared with us at WPR.org food. That's WPR.org food. A pastry, a coconut cake that we didn't even really talk about, and then an open-faced uh, rye bread sandwich. Monday on the Morning Show with Kate Archer Kent. Meet people around the country working to build a more sustainable and fair economy with the author of the new book, The Alternative. That's Monday morning at 8 on the Ideas Network. Getting back to food. If you want to make an omelet, you got to break some eggs. And if you want to make a super giant omelet, you might need to break over 15,000 eggs. I just saw this link from the website boingboing.com. Later this month, a community in France will fire up an annual Easter tradition. It's part of a multi-day festival. They cook up a giant omelet. It goes back to a legend of Napoleon Bonaparte. Supposedly he ate an omelet in the area, liked it so much, made a large-scale order for his army. The modern omelet tradition was cooked up by a group that calls itself the Knights of the Giant Omelet. Starting back in the 1970s, the first omelets used just a few thousand eggs. Now it's grown to the 15,000-plus mark. In answer to two obvious questions, yes, the omelet gets eaten by thousands of people who gather to watch the event. And no, they don't flip it as far as I can tell. They just stir it with these giant wooden spoons. Probably row a boat with them. Me, I'm a fan of the two-egg omelet. I'll probably just stick with that. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. Earlier this week, Re Republican Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky made an announcement about his political future. I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job my colleagues have given me until... We select a new leader in November, and they take the helm next January. McConnell is the longest-serving party leader in the history of the Senate. This came as congressional leaders have been working around the clock, against the clock, again, to fund the government and prevent a partial shutdown. The deadline was late tonight. Both chambers of Congress passed a short-term spending bill as of yesterday. It puts off the next decision until one week from today. We're going to talk about the significance of McConnell's announcement, what it means about changes happening in the Republican Party, and what it took to keep the government fully open for now. You could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have thoughts on this continuing series of short-term resolutions to keep the government funded? Should Republicans use their leverage to get more out of these deals, do you think, as some conservatives in the House especially have been making the case for? Do you want to see longer-term funding deals set? And in a bit, we'll talk about uh, Senator Mitch McConnell and his long run as Republican leader in the Senate. You can join in with your thoughts on him as well at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Susan Johnson is Associate Professor in the Department of Politics, Government, and Law at UW-Whitewater. Susan, welcome back to Central Time. Thanks for having me, Rob. Well, it's kind of like a broken record at this point, Susan. Again, uh, a deadline. Again, a short-term extension on funding. Why do we keep ending up here? Well, you're right. And what's interesting to me is that this was something that seemed to have snuck up on 
all of us in the sense that Congress went home for a two-week President's Day break. And um, there was, I think there was significant concern, as there usually is, but I think that this time even more so, that in fact there was going to be a government shutdown. There were members of Congress who were speaking as if it was inevitable that we would see something. And then all of the sudden, middle of this week, we instead have a compromise, let's say, in the House where there is a very short-term change. So Speaker Johnson, for some reason, decided that he wanted to split the the continuing resolutions into two continuing resolutions, and he's done this before, and that's why we had these two different deadlines. So half of the government funding was set to expire today, and then the other half next Friday. And so what happened is that we've kicked the can down a week for the half that was set to expire today, and then the 22nd for the other half. So now we've got a couple of weeks for some of it and a week for the rest. And then the the one-week deadline generally seems to be thought of as the easier stuff, uh, things that might be easier to come to a, a consensus, a compromise on. And then that later one has some more hot-button issues, including border security funding, national security funding. Uh, can you talk about that division of labor and how it could shake out? Right. So what's coming up next week is agriculture, commerce, justice, and some of the other things, as you said, that are seen that seem to be less controversial. And then we've got in a couple of weeks those items that you mentioned that that deal with tougher issues. From what I've read, the there's still up in the air whether any funding will be present in that later set of bills for Ukraine and um, other aid, including for Taiwan and other foreign aid budgets. What is also happening is that what Speaker Johnson does not want to do is pass everything in one lump omnibus bill, which we've gotten used to funding the government year in and year out over the past over a decade in these giant omnibus bills. What he's hoping to see happen next week is passing a half dozen different appropriations bills that will fund some of the items that you mentioned. And then again, down the road in a couple of weeks, pass other individual funding bills to cover these different units, including, like you said, defense, homeland security, health and human services, and others. Now, Johnson, Speaker Johnson's predecessor, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker, lost that post in part because some Republicans were unhappy that he extended short-term funding uh, bills with Democratic support. He needed Democratic votes to pass some of these. Now, Speaker Johnson has passed the short-term funding bill where he needed Democratic support to get it passed. Can you talk a little bit about that dynamic within the Republicans in the House here? Why did it end up overthrowing McCarthy? And at least for now, Johnson seems to get away with it. Yeah, not only that, but the one of the items that cost McCarthy his job was that in doing this, he also brought these bills to the floor, suspending the rules that allowed for this to happen more quickly and eliminated the um, procedural rules that could have put an end to all of this. And so without getting too much in the weeds, that's what McCarthy did in, in addition to what you mentioned that cost him his job. And now Johnson has done the exact same thing. And when some members of the Republican uh, conference in the House were asked about this and asked whether or not this would cost Johnson his job, they were a little cagier as far as um, how this might go. Susan Johnson is with us, political scientist at UW-Whitewater, looking at yet another funding deadline, creating just yet another funding deadline in a week and in a couple of weeks in Congress. Plus, in a bit, we'll talk about uh, Mitch McConnell's announcement that he will no longer, as of November, be the Republican leader in the U.S. Senate after 
a long stretch, the longest stretch in a role like that. You could join in on either issue at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Susan, a, a perennial issue in these congressional debates is a border security. Uh, Speaker Johnson met, uh, along with others, with President Biden on Wednesday to talk about funding. When Speaker Johnson came out and talked to reporters, he focused on border security. Here's a listen. The first priority of the country is our border and making sure it's secure. I I believe the president can take executive authority right now today to change that. And I told him that again today in person, as as I've said to him many times, publicly and privately over the last several weeks. It's time for action. It is a catastrophe and it must stop. And we will get the government funded and we'll keep working on that. So we'll have more for you soon. Speaker Johnson there, though, not specifically saying we won't pass funding bills unless that happens. Executive action from the president or uh, enhanced border security in a budget deal in Congress. Is that an important uh, note to make? I think there's so much to talk about (laughs) when it comes to the border and the funding and the fact that there had been a bipartisan plan that had been negotiated by uh, uh, members of the Senate to do a lot of what Speaker Johnson and others have been calling for. And then there was a decision that that would never get called for a vote. There are things that the president can do administratively, but he's also quite limited in what he can do administratively. And I think that down the road, they're going to have to pass something to keep the government going. And so I think uh, Speaker Johnson is, um, you know, We've seen over time now that he's allowed these funding things to go through, and and I don't see why we're not the next time. We are talking to UW-Whitewater's Susan Johnson about the latest news in Congress, including the approaching deadline to continue funding the full government. And coming up, we'll look at Republican Senator Mitch McConnell's announcement this week that he would step down as the Republican leader in the Senate this fall. He'll serve out his term as senator for Kentucky. You can join in at 800-642-1234 with your thoughts on either of those, the uh, deadlines again and again on these funding bills and the Senator McConnell's long term as Republican leader in the Senate and a change coming. You could join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our talk with Susan Johnson, Associate Professor in the Department of Politics, Government, and Law at UW-Whitewater, talking about Republican Senator Mitch McConnell's announcement this week that he'll step down in November from being the Republican leader in the Senate, as well as the near partial government shutdown Congress avoided by passing a very short-term spending bill yesterday. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Chris is with us in Fairchild. Hi, Chris. Hi. Um, so my take on this is that every couple of weeks we seem to end up in this laddered CR short-term shutdown debacle. And it, from my perspective, uh, you know, Johnson has stuck his thumb in the eye of Democrats at just about every turn. So if he can whip his party and do this all on their own vote, then I think that's what he should do. I think Democrats should just step back and let him do whatever it is he thinks he can get done. But at at this point, you know, we're going to end up in this in two weeks and then another two weeks and then another two weeks. So that's my perspective on this. Chris, thanks a lot for the call. And Susan, Chris points toward a challenge for Mike Johnson or whoever happens to be the speaker, Republican Speaker of the House. A very tight majority can only afford to lose a couple few votes and parts of the party who want uh, more than he's willing to offer at some points. At some points, can you talk about the challenge of doing what Chris just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, Chris Chris is right that um, in order to get this stuff done, he has needed, Speaker Johnson has needed Democratic votes. This most recent bill, only 113 Republicans voted for it and 207 Democrats did. So without Democrats, this wouldn't have happened. I think that Democrats are acutely aware of the damage that would be done by even a short-term government shutdown, and they don't want to see that happen. And so they're weighing 
how much do we put pressure on the Republicans and have them do this versus do we want to have the negative consequences for the country that come with a government shutdown and they seem to end up always on the side of keeping the government open and some Democrats voters are unhappy that they're willing to compromise and others see it as necessary. Chris, thanks a lot for that call. Susan, let's turn now to Senator Mitch McConnell, longtime Republican leader in the Senate, currently minority leader, has been majority leader over the years, saying he's going to be done with that leadership role come November. How big a deal is that? Well, I think that people expected that perhaps he would have this be his last term as Senate leader for the Republicans, given that he's um, a couple, 82 or so, also because he has had some health issues. His term isn't over for several more years, and he indicated he's not going anywhere in that regard. I think that what's most surprising, and the other reason why I think people aren't necessarily surprised is he's had a very rocky relationship with former President Trump. They haven't actually spoken, I understand, from what I've read since early in 2021 or right around uh, after the 2020 election. So I think what is most surprising to people is the timing because he announced obviously at the end of February, he intends to remain through the election. And normally what happens after the November election is that the each caucus will then meet to select who their leader will be. And then that person will assume that responsibility in January of 2025. So there's a whole lot of time now for people to jockey for his position. Perhaps he was being intentional in making his announcement to allow for that jockeying, or perhaps he has a preferred person in mind that he's hoping can get some momentum by an early announcement. Let's bring on a caller now at 800-642-1234. Tim is with us in Viroqua. Tim, hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say that um, Mitch McConnell is going to go down in history as the most anti-democratic speaker uh, of the House or leader of the Republican uh, Senate conference ever because of his... Um, denial of Obama's, you know, denial of the will of the people's vote who elected president. Uh, Tim broke up there. I think he was getting to uh, the, the Merrick Garland nomination uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in the last year of the Obama presidency and uh, then Majority Leader Mitch McConnell not allowing that to come to a vote. Susan, is that going to be, as Tim suggests, a big part of Mitch McConnell's legacy? I th- and I'm assuming Tim meant small d democratic. And um, I think that for a lot of people, yes, that is going to be one of the things that Mitch McConnell is remembered for. I think that there are going to be a lot of people, however, who are going to see that maneuver that Tim was referencing with blocking President Obama's ability to nominate and get confirmed to Supreme Court justice after Uh, Justice Scalia's death in February before the election as one of his um, best moments in terms of getting a a hold off so that a Republican could, could appoint someone to the court. So I think that a lot of times people's interpretations of Senator McConnell and others is influenced by where they sit on the political spectrum. There would be an argument, I think, Susan, that uh, that maneuver was, uh, if not uh, uh, a complete departure from tradition, an escalation of an ongoing uh, back and forth between Democrats and Republicans over getting judges confirmed uh, to the Supreme Court and other federal judges. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people uh, met Senator McConnell's statements with incredulity. I mean, just given the fact that it was February and the election wasn't until November, and the claim was that we weren't going to do this in an election year. I think that it added fuel to the fire when then in late 2020, we had the um, 
the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And then I believe it was in October that we had a confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett as a Supreme Court justice. So I think that that just added to um, Democrats and just a lot of Americans in general really being unhappy with what happened. And it just made it even worse. I want to give another listen to Senator Mitch McConnell now. Uh, he talked at length when he made this decision to uh, step down as leader effective November. Uh, and uh, here's uh, some more of what he had to say. Uh, this is uh, our Mitch 2 uh, clip. Nope, we don't have it ready. Okay. Uh, anyway, so he talked about uh, differences of opinion with the Republican Party when it came to uh, foreign policy, Ukraine, and more. And, and you mentioned earlier the conflict with uh, former President Trump. Uh, this He's suddenly Mitch McConnell in kind of on the outs with his own party. Yes, for sure. And I mean, I think that, that that's probably been something that has pushed him, perhaps, if the um, the idea that if President Trump were to be reelected, that he would be working with President Trump. The other issue is that were President Trump to have been reelected, or should he be reelected, there would, I'm assuming, had been a push or would be a push from former President Trump to have someone replace McConnell. And I think that this, obviously, this doesn't allow that to happen, but um, that might have been a calculus as well. So looking to the future now of a leadership in the Senate, is Donald Trump's endorsement going to be key to determining who takes Mitch McConnell's place as a Republican leader in the Senate? I don't see how it, it couldn't have <laughs> some impact. There are three people right now, uh, the three Johns they're referring to them as, um, John Thune, John Cornyn, and John Barrasso, who are um three senators from North Dakota, Texas, and uh, Wyoming, respectively. And they're the names that have been floated, um, Cornyn and Thune, even more so than Barrasso. But um, also, we should remember that Rick Scott from Florida actually challenged McConnell the last time. So um, of, of the three Johns, I believe that it's um, Barrasso who would be seen as being the closest to President Trump, um, we haven't heard him say anything that I've seen yet, but I would anticipate that we will hear something. It's not like former President Trump to not like to weigh in on these things. And briefly, Susan, I've seen an argument over the years that, uh, you know, some years back, especially with the Newt Gingrich era, that the House became more contentious, partisan, hostile, and that the Senate is slowly following suit. Is that something you've seen happen under, uh, maybe not because of Mitch McConnell, but under his Republican leadership? I think that, yes, the Senate has become less collegial, less bipartisan. It, it's still more so than the House. And you can point to some of the work that McConnell actually has done with President Biden on passing some things like the infrastructure law and and other things. So I think that the Senate still remains more bipartisan, but um, maybe only by a hair. Susan, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us today. Happy to be with you, Rob. We've been talking to Susan Johnson, associate professor in the Department of Politics, Government, and Law at UW-Whitewater. Talked to her about a couple of big stories out of Washington this week, including the ongoing effort to keep the federal government going. A deadline came and went, uh, and we've got new deadlines coming up, one in a week, one in a couple weeks as well. Plus, the announcement from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell that he'll leave his longtime leadership role among Republicans in the U.S. Senate, though serve out his term as senator from Kentucky. Coming up Monday here on Central Time, we'll meet a Wisconsin teacher who's in Alaska getting a firsthand look at the Iditarod race in a teacher on the trail program. And... We're talking about you here. If you're going to bed earlier these days, maybe not staying out as late as you used to, you are not alone. Find out why there's a trend away from the late night life from many Americans. And we'd love to hear from you. You could start that conversation right now. Email ideas at WPR.org. That's ideas at WPR.org. Has your bedtime gotten earlier over the years? Are you less prone to go out and do stuff late at night? Email ideas at WPR.org. That and more coming up Monday on Central Time.